0: Okay, so for this Wayward episode that was supposed to go out July 4th, but like Erin and I couldn't get our life together to like record, I apologize. But I am grateful uh, for y'all for listening and hanging with us while we have the best attempts at getting things out on time, but you know... There's wiggle room. So for everybody that's listening that was waiting on this episode to drop a little while ago, I apologize and take partial credit. Aaron also gets the other partial credit, but thank you, thank you. And I hope that these gratitude entries into the universe are they're making you sit back and look and reflect on all of the little things that we can be grateful for every single day. And uh, there's a lot such as the perfect blend, the perfect ratio of the guava papaya tea from Panera with their unsweet tea, because that's a sweet spot. It's not too sweet, just the right level of unsweet. It's kind of amazing. So I guess I'm grateful for y'all and for hydration for today's episode. So thanks.
1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com.
0: Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures, I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters. National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech Language and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current board of trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG13, SCISHA, the Speech Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAV, a member of the National Black Speech Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 Convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite Podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator, and I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current
2: disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Okay, guys, we
0: finally did it. We are only 25-ish days behind schedule on the episode that was supposed to come out July 4th. And trust me when I say it's my fault. Erin is the most patient woman in the world and has, how many times did we reschedule this? Seven. Seven. <laughs> seven times,
2: seven times.
0: Ah, but all for really good reasons, like all legit really good reasons. Only things in the universe happen. And then today, right before we went to record, while I'm on the phone with Aaron, dog bolted out the front door and went through one of the plants and I ended up having to spend about 30 minutes pulling sticker pickers off of her. I don't know if y'all know those are the the burrowing seeds that like get on dog's furs and will go down to their skin. So we all survived. Uh, oh, she's pissed at me. She nipped at me once when I popped her on her nose and it wasn't her fault, but I mean, ugh, she's too sassy for her own good. She's like her mother, yep. but alas, I digress. We made it. So, if you are waiting on us, my responsibility, I own it and I apologize. Erin wins all the gold stars for patient co host of the year. Yay. So, we are covering episodic care. Mm -hmm. And this is honestly an episode that we kind of created for ourselves because of things that are going on professionally in our worlds. And we wanted to. Share what we were learning and growing, and the resources to support it so that you could grow your evidence based triangle and help Im- implement uh, a dynamic approach in your facilities. So, Erin, why don't you tell us how episodic care came up in your world?
2: So, where I am right now, oh, and I'm sure everybody can relate to difficulties with access and kids getting seen. And weightless being astronomical. Yes. And so a lot of the conversation has been around that. And so, because we're not growing speech pathology programs at the rate that patients are needing services, there has to be another solution. And one of those is a transition to episodic care which can look different, like there's different interpretations of what that looks like, what an episode looks like, how it is decided that an episode is done. I've talked to people at different facilities that an episode will be six months long. Some places will do three months and kind of see from there. But it's been something that I've had to dive into learning more about. And also having conversations with families about what an episode is, why it's valuable. Because, yeah, it's great. You can get other kids on your schedule, but then the patients that don't – are used to having very consistent weekly services for years and years, it can be very abrupt for them and it can be scary for them. But – I like, and we'll talk more about this, but I really like the ownership it puts on caregivers and the clinician to coach the caregiver Yes, because we know that this isn't going to be forever. You know that you hopefully know that when you start with any family, but I think we've all had those patients that have been on our caseload forever and that it's like caregiver and patient don't necessarily know what to do without Clinician, when that's yeah.
0: Yes. So here's our recommendations moving forward. Like to filter today's episode through your lens, right? We will have patients that because of their etiology and/or comorbidities, they will always qualify for services, right? However, yeah. Just because there is a certain diagnosis does not mean that services are warranted at that time. And it is okay to give permission that either the patient has hit a plateau, the patient has reached a level where they are comfortable, whether or not their caregivers are, okay? at moments like this, I think of my brother-in-law, his diagnosis means that he will always be eligible for services, right? Because he has an IEP. He's I, He has an IEP under part A, um, IDEA, right? For 21 and older. However, even though he has a diagnosis of autism and an intellectual disability, he does not currently receive speech therapy services because he can Joyfully and functionally communicate
1: its wants and
0: needs, as Aaron found out on Father's Day weekend. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yes, him and the boys had an in-depth conversation about Teen Titans Go. And it was quite lovely. But Titans Go, Star Star Wars, and Star Trek. He corrected me on.
0: Yes. Oh, I'm he's just, the man. I don't. Knows I don't his... know. Yeah, I know. He was. He was worried that you didn't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. But well, in... It, kids also deserve to be kids and just because they have a diagnosis doesn't mean that they don't deserve to play. And And I think too, when you give caregivers permission to take a break or to just like be a caregiver, then it gives them more opportunity to truly understand their child and who they are and just live authentically because when we're constantly going to therapy too, that caregiver is thinking about your goals and what you're working on. And am I carrying this over the way I'm supposed to? And have I done the homework? And sometimes just to release that anxiety, Kim Barth always talks about how when you're working on compliance, that creates cortisol, which is what we is elevated when we're stressed. So, Sometimes when a caregiver is stressed and they're coming to therapy and things aren't going necessarily the way that they pictured, the lack of progress can also be from that stress and that burnout too that mm-hmm. happens when – I mean, I, I, and I think about it like I go to therapy and even making like one therapy appointment a month or two therapy appointments a month is hard for me. So mm-hmm. to think that these families go to at least a lot of them – three appointments a week mm-hmm. and these children, like I I try to put that into perspective sometimes because it's like, that's a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had a thought, but I'll embed it later, but that is so episodic care in a nutshell. And Aaron found the most amazing article. So I'm going, uh, it is five strategies to help families act as speech and language coaches. By Susanna Sylvia, and it was in the Asha Leader on June twelfth, twenty nineteen. Excuse me, it's a beautifully written article, and she does the best summation that I have found to date. An episodic care model is a model that offers a definitive start and stop date of focused and skilled intervention. And as she just she said exactly what Aaron said: continuous therapy can cause burnout. Okay. So
2: and she does best- say something very important there, skilled. Skilled. Because sometimes I think we keep kids on our caseload. And if the caregiver knows what you're doing, if the caregiver's carrying it over, if you have nothing else skilled or nuanced to offer the family is what you're doing really skilled. And I think I always think about that because mm-hmm. I'm like, am I, you know, I feel like a lot of times. We're talking about feeding therapy specifically. Like you have a kid that's an aspirator and you have them in every week just to watch them drink. Is that really skilled? No, no. You're monitoring, but we have to empower the caregiver to know how to monitor so that if they feel something has changed, that they can reach out and contact us. And we don't need to bill them every week to sit there and watch and see if they cough. And if they cough, what are we going to do?
0: Document it, but unless it's an over, I mean. mm. I had a coughing incident today because I flash penetrated, subsequently aspirated a large sip of water in the middle of a Feeding Matters Zoom call, surrounded by feeding therapists and caregivers, and then I had to flip the camera off while I like felt like I was dying trying to eject it, and then went back on totally red-faced, and a bunch of the women were looking at me, and I was like, oh yeah, they all know what just happened, but... Sitting there watching us eat or drink is not skilled. And that, friends, listen to what we're saying. If you're doing that, you're tiptoeing into the shades of gray where if it's not skilled, is it a billable and subsequently reimbursable activity? And that could result in if an individual were to make a complaint that that's an ongoing situation, that I mean, that could be a Medicaid fraud issue. So, this is, there's implications here beyond just learning about a new model, right? It, it's the, we have to critically assess what it is that we're doing on our day to day. Now, Aaron and I, when we first conceptualized this episode, it stemmed from Aaron's facility was moving to episodic care on a 12 week cycle. Is that correct?
1: Mhm.
0: And at the university at our university clinic we open during the semesters. So in between semesters there it it the university's not available because the university literally shuts down. So because of the uh, structure of academia, our university clinic has to run on an episodic care model, right? That's just how it is, which means that we are then charged with educating the caregivers on the purpose of caregiver coaching and why they have to be involved. That also means that we really have to teach our students how to employ not just skilled intervention, but also how to teach a fellow adult. And that. Those two sentences are one very giant, long run-on sentence. There's so many steps that go behind on teaching another adult how to learn. But an episodic care model in short is you have a definitive start and end time. It is a skilled surface, um, service. And then you have a period where therapy does not occur. It doesn't mean that therapy is over and that you never come back to it. You can circle back around the therapy and have a set. We're going to follow up in two weeks. We're going to follow up in a month. We're going to follow up in six weeks. And you circle back to how was the carryover. But I think my favorite piece is that it forces us as clinicians to work on relationship building with the caregiver and guiding the relationship building. I sound like you, Erin, relationship building between the caregiver and
2: their child. Yep. Well, and I'm doing my competencies right now and they talk, there's one article that I really like that talks about parental stress when they're inpatient. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest parts of the contributor of that is feeling like they don't have control anymore because they were the primary caretaker of this child. And now you have all these other professionals making decisions taking care of that. I am now the person that sees primarily the inpatient to outpatient kids that we get. And my biggest goal in that is to help the caregiver feel empowered and gain some control back over feeding. Mm -hmm. Because... There's, you know, if they're coming to see me for feeding, there was a shift in that or they need continued support. But it does, I think when you know there's that time limit too, you have to talk more about what those goals are because you have a specific moment in time. So instead of, I'm going to look at all of these goals I want to work on and, you know, I have as much time as possible, it creates more of a purposeful, intentional, uh, period of time where you're not just, you know, is this kid going to meet this goal? Okay. We have 12 weeks. Does caregiver feel comfortable? Okay. We have, we're halfway through. How do you feel that things are going? Do you want, should we change how we're doing things? Do you feel comfortable? Okay. We have, you know, three weeks left. This is where I've seen the progress. This is what my goal is for when we end. What's your goal? What's important to you? it creates more opportunity for more of those conversations and then conversations for caregiver to then say also where, where they're feeling. Cause I think oftentimes, again, that loss of control, like they don't always know that they have as much say and are as much of a part of the team as, as they are. So I've found it does give a lot more opportunity for that collaboration, for that collaborative goal writing, for, shifting and adjusting what's working and what's not within the partnership and the relationship that you have with the family that you're working with. Because a lot of times too, I, I spend working with caregivers on just like understanding their kid. Reading and their uh,
0: mm-hmm. and that, that's huge. How are they, how did they, <sighs> Okay. This is a thought. I would love to see a research study. and I'm sure this is going to... Folks, if this upsets you, I apologize in advance. But I would love to see a research study on the prevalence of, quote-unquote, tongue-tie diagnoses for breastfeeding infants in worlds in different countries where they have federally supported long term what maternity leave.
2: Oh okay, yes. Right?
0: Because I
2: I suspect
0: my hypothesis is that these long term these countries where they have long term maternity leave with like a ton of supports, like especially like the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, they yep. I mean they with even
2: time to build attachment with their child. Yes. With, don't give don't give all the things away, Michelle.
0: Uh, what these ideas? Study,
2: don't give all don't give all yeah. the ideas away.
0: I know I have really good ideas, but like I suspect my hypothesis is that there's a lower prevalence of tongue tie and colic than there are in oh no America. Because you know, you have a baby and then you go
2: right back to work because Yeah, two days later. <sighs>
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this mommy made it four and six, and that kind of felt like a Hail Mary pass right there. But anyway, <laughs> as I go down trauma lane and relive that in my head. Okay. But thoughts like that to me tie back into when is episodic care relevant, right? Uh-huh. So when. When you're looking at it, like where, what are the settings? Okay. So we can do it at a university. We can do it outpatient. I mean, inpatient, you're obviously there. However, you're really not. If the patient starts, if they have to be sedated, if they have to be intubated, then that period of care stops and it starts again, once they're medically stable for services to begin. Right. Mm -hmm. So
2: well, and there's a lot more, I feel like like we found a lot more research in the OT and PT world with mm-hmm. episodic care.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But pred- this is predicated on we know how to read our patients, that we recognize when our patients have hit a therapeutic plateau or when our patients are not medically ready at this time to progress forward, Right. So as it correlates to pediatric feeding disorder, if you have a patient whose caregivers want them to progress with new foods, however, they are undergoing major testing or have a major surgery scheduled, maybe the caregivers want to try a tapered weaning protocol, but the child is getting ready for cardiac surgery or I don't know, a transplant because of the conversation that we had earlier. I would anticipate in that moment in time, if we're going to have work done on our heart, then most likely there's an increased risk for nerve damage that could result in vocal fold paralysis. So I would wait and hold on that therapy until the patient is deemed medically stable. So there's lots of implications for when is episodic care relevant and it has everything to do with you and the caregiver being on the same page, reading the patient and recognizing when has a plateau hit? Let's pause, um, circle back around when they're developmentally ready for the next developmental stage or when they are medically ready or, oh, I had a thought and then I lost it. When they've acquired a new skill, but they just need a little bit more time to master it to like to like you know say they're doing it in therapy with you but the caregiver reports they're not doing consistently at home mm-hmm. then before you jump into advancing towards the next you know identifiable feeding skill set well wait let them accomplish this and feel feel confident because one of the worst things that we can do is keep throwing the next challenging thing at someone before they yeah. feel success. But that's also true in all aspects of our lives. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. that was a lot of thoughts where, okay. Where else can you see episodic care being done? I mean, outpatient, impatient,
2: outpatient, a basic, I mean, it's an episode inpatient because they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're there mm-hmm. for how long they're there for. I know home health is a, is tricky in that it depends on where you're getting the funding from. If it's a birth to three, you know, I, I don't I haven't found that much research in regards to early intervention, episodic care specifically, because I know that the goal is like let's give them as much intervention as we can while they're mm-hmm. young. But still a lot of that, you know, if if I s I've all and you and I've talked about this too with with discharge, because we, you know, I, you and I tend to discharge kids before other therapists might discharge them, but if they're on a good path and the, and the caregiver feels comfortable with the plan, Mm -hmm. then like, it's similar to when a kid, you know, a child is put, is given tube feeds. Like we just take away so much control from the caregiver. It's like, I don't need to be your baby if I feel like I'm being your babysitter now this is like too much. That's am I scary. really giving you new things or am I just babysitting and watching to make sure you're doing it the right way? Like yes. You know what I mean? Like if you start to feel like I'm just kind of like here like make, you know, then then that's when and and it's about trusting your caregivers and trusting yourself. And the nice thing about thinking about the episodic care is yes, you might end up having more patience in your you know, brain and and that you kind of keep in touch with, but just because they're not getting therapy doesn't mean they can't reach out for consulting. It doesn't mean they can't. You know, they're still the thing with episodic care. Like they're still your patient because they're taking a break. It's not an official discharge. So, hey, something happened. I really need to come in for a visit. Okay, get it back. Let's check in and see how everything's going. Let's make sure, let's problem solve this. It's not cutting them off and saying, it it alleviates that I have to discharge them or I have to keep them on forever. It gives you a good middle ground of you're still my patient. I'm still going to support you. If something happens with the doctor, we can still talk about it. I can still reach out to your physicians and have conversations with them. But right now we're not getting weekly therapy because we're, you know, giving them time to like live and be a family.
0: So f- this is how it would look on my home health schedule, right? So when I was doing home health and I was doing episodic care in home health, this is how it would look. I would have, I worked, honestly, I worked four days a week and I saw five, four to five patients in four days because the fifth day was just for podcasting, volunteer work, and advocacy events, right? So I only worked Monday through Thursday. So I would have on my caseload, 20 to 25 patients, right? But I wasn't seeing 20 to 25 patients weekly. I was probably only seeing 18 to 20 patients a week. And then the other patients were either biweekly or once a month, or I would just call and check in. Hey, how are you guys doing? Do we need to go ahead and discharge or would you like to do a home health visit? Right. But by flexing my hours that way, and yes, did it mean I had increased IFSP meetings because we had to be able to fluctuate the frequency of services as opposed to only seeing once every six months? Yes. I mean, sometimes my IFSP meetings were like once every three months, we were like, hey, this kid's ready, we're going to go back to weekly, or hey, this kid still needs to be plateaued, or on like, you know, biweekly or once a month, because they're still in a plateau, or they're in a holding pattern. But there is a way to build this into your schedule, such that you're meeting the needs of those individuals where they are, and still, like, how do I explain this? If you're seeing them once a month, and you have four or five that you're seeing once a month, then you can hold that same hour for those patients and just rotate through, right? So there's wise ways to put this into your scheduling so that you're still providing for your family, which I know that you are, and you're still meeting the needs of your patients. And there's a way to, to meet both, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I had a thought. And.
0: <laughs> Y'all, we're recording. It's the end of the day. Aaron was slammed today. On, you were on what? The transplant floor and GI floor? Is that what floors I'm you were on? The on? floors
2: and the cardiac floor. I, yeah. And my brain hurts a little bit from all the surgeries <laughs> I learned about today. But. <sighs> It's more work because you're juggling more case management, but at the same time, that's that's kind of our job, and so then it becomes – and it also – things are changing, and sometimes when things start to change, it can get really difficult, but – if we started to, if more people started to move towards this episodic care model with more consulting, we could advocate more for getting paid for some of that consulting and being able to bill for that. Also, if it helped with... with
0: Wait, hold that thought. I saw an article. It came across my desk and I'm going to have to go back and find it. You either
2: had like a really serious idea or something like exploded outside of your house. Yeah. No, no, no. I
0: had my, Oh my goodness face. There was an email update and it came out from Asha because I'm on the, I don't know if you guys know this or not. You guys can customize your Asha listserv so that certain articles or certain words trigger and they will send you email updates but there's a new CPT code that comes out next year that actually allows for reimbursement. If you consult with physicians and it's a higher rate, I'm going to have to go back and find it. And I, cause when I read it, I was confused. I didn't know if it was, I don't remember if it was, you had to be inpatient or if it was In the same building, or if it was like a phone call incident, or if it was a Zoom meeting, but I just saw that it came up, and I was like, the amount of home health therapists that could get reimbursed for the time that they put forth in consultative services.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So I'll I'll go back and find that and pull it for the next time. But yes, yeah, I mean,
2: because like when you work an inpatient, a lot of times things the billing gets kind of bundled together, so it's. Yeah, it's not as much of a each. Like you when know, you're in on your paper visit, yeah. every phone call. Uh,
0: yeah, and depending on the state, oh,
2: that's kind huh? of... The of the okay, so
0: tell us about this article that you found and what you loved in it and why it spoke to your soul, hun.
2: Which one, the Asha one?
0: Yeah, because it was so good.
2: Well, I, I really liked that. She talked a lot about, I mean, the goal was, again, to how do we build coaching and how do we work more with caregivers, which is, how do I say this without being, I don't know. I think it is harder, especially when you start, they always say, you know, you really know something when you can teach it to somebody else. So if you're not totally comfortable with what you're doing, it's going to be really hard to coach a caregiver to do that, which makes sense. But I do feel like there's some – we also have to be honest and transparent with our caregivers. So, yeah, there's a sense of, you know, not necessarily the feeding, but, like, people will say fake it till you make it. <laughs> I look at it as, like, be open about your thought process because mm-hmm. you may not have all the answers but if you talk the caregiver through why you're doing what you're doing that can help them understand what what might work for their child mm-hmm. and if you don't know why you're doing so this is also another thing if you don't know why you're doing something and you're just doing it because some other supervisor told you to do it and you can't explain that to a caregiver then that's another checkpoint of ooh why am i doing this because Caregivers are going to ask questions. Yes. And the answer is not, this is how someone else did this, or this is how. And it is really hard. Working with kids is really hard because you work with them and their caregivers. And often, and and I find my hardest sessions are my sessions where caregiver and child are not matching up with their expectations or their sensory systems or their, you know, how I'm connecting with either one of them, because I feel like I'm now having to like shift between the session and then also help their relationship. So that can be really difficult, but then it poses the ability for you to either demonstrate what you're doing with the child or to take a step back and try and understand where that's coming from, because you live in the house you grew up in and there's Mm -hmm. reasons behind why a relationship is the way that it is. Mm-hmm. So it, that coaching aspect. And I, I don't know. I don't, I think I don't love calling it coaching because it gives this inclination of like, I'm the coach and you're like, I think it's, I, I, it's
0: so much more than that.
2: Collaborating is what it is, but.
0: Yeah.
2: there's it is. A, Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the work that I learned from Dr. Burns and the courses that she had me sit through from Dr. Juliana Woods out of Florida, it is so much more of when you're engaged in caregiver coaching, you're almost like the caregiver's life guide to helping them navigate a treacherous path that they didn't know was coming Mm -hmm. and now they're there and you're asking them probing questions, not just saying, Hey, I need you to throw a rope here and tie it off here. And then, you know, you can traverse the bridge this way. It is seeking to understand, do they have the skills to Mm -hmm.
2: throw a rope,
0: tie a knot, and if not giving them the supports. Sorry, Bear's been watching a lot of Mount Everest shows like nice. lately.
2: So like, that's why I went to like <laughs> Well to not, and, and that's the other thing, is and this is where I get caught and I have to take a step back. Is there will be times where I really connect with a child and mm-hmm. build a really strong relationship, but it's not anywhere near close to how that caregiver is going to interact with that child. Yes. And so that's when we have to shift what we're doing to better align with that caregiver. And and there's a balance. Sometimes I will model it for a while if I know the caregiver is eventually going to buy in. And sometimes I have to really go to them to bring them to another spot. And sometimes that caregiver is not going to budge and that is okay. And if you can't reach them, they might need somebody different. Yes. And that's, you know, I've found there's a couple patients, you know, there's families I've worked with where... I just, my More. core values and their core values are not aligning. And that doesn't mean there's a wrong and, and mine are right. It just means that there's, a difference. there's a difference and that's okay. Okay. So I have to, I'm going to try my hardest to adjust for them, but sometimes it doesn't always match, but I'm going to try my best. Like I, I, you know, as a professional, it's our job to adjust first, but yes, hi dog.
0: Dog says hi. So there is oh, dog, dog says, I, I forgive mommy for pulling all the sticker pickers out of me. Okay, so there's a really good website, huh? It's on Asha, it is asha.org backslash practice backslash pair hyphen portal backslash service hyphen delivery hyphen methods. I love and when you do
2: this. When, when I, I, I don't know know, you do it. know you could just say like go to Asha and search service delivery models, but she's like www colon slash slash.
0: Okay, let my middle age show. We had to do that back in the day. Oh my god, I was thinking of something. So fun fact, y'all. Like all things in the universe that conspire against me, we just power through. I have a fourth. Cousin cannot make this up that was born the exact same day as me, um, and given the exact same maiden name. And, um, this was pre good internet. We found out when we were 18 that each other existed when we both, on the same day, went to buy a car and get a car loan. The universe. And thought the other person was committing fraud on other parts of Virginia and tried to cancel each other's information. So, after numerous trips of driving back and forth to the social security department, because I am middle aged and it was pre high speed internet, like readily available everywhere to manage life, um, we found out that I am four hours older than her. And, uh, she got a new social security number and I got to keep the original social security number, which worked out really, really well until today when we went to do my retirement benefits, because apparently my fourth cousin is enrolled in Virginia retirement benefits (laughs) under my maiden name, which was her name. (laughs) So like the universe, but the long story short of that is there's, Things that pop up that I still, that's how I was taught, Erin, anywho. Okay, fun, scary facts. Maybe one day I'll have a retirement plan created in my own name. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. Oh okay, God. but on this website, everybody's like, are you familiar right now, Michelle? Yes, yes, it really happened. They go through on this website and actually break down potential treatment approaches. And individual group treatment, co treatment, uh, skilled maintenance, telepractice, consultation, and then targeting IPE and IPP. But I love under the skilled maintenance program, that is exactly what you plug in and create and teach the caregivers during the breaks and episodic care, right? You make sure that they have a strong, robust program. And that they know who to call when, and and you check in. So there's resources in here, and what I also liked is that there is a a tool, um, and it's called thinking through varied. Hold on, internet. Thinking through varied service delivery models, and it's on that same page. So Ash has created this tool. So say you're um, totally on board with doing episodic care. And you're trying to pitch this to your higher ups at your private practice that by transitioning to an episodic care model, you're going to be able to better serve the individuals in your community, right? But you're trying to guide your colleagues or maybe a student or a younger clinician and how to come to this decision-making process. Well, they have a free tool to work through it and this is when you're sitting through um, a staff meeting. This is something that could be pulled out for, to make the staff meeting relevant. Um, Cause let's be honest, not all staff meetings are relevant. Sometimes you're like, especially if you work in the public schools, you're like, why am I here? But this would be a really, really good tool. Oh, oh, we adulted because we turned this into a doc. They're also in the show notes. Oh,
2: we did it. Yes.
0: Look at us. Nailed it. Last night we were like, we're going to record. And I was like, how about instead we do part one, the research fact-finding and organization and then tomorrow night record. That was yeah, yeah. the seventh and final um, reschedule. <laughs>
2: I thought everyone was going to drive to Stanton and whoop me.
0: <laughs> so, okay. But there are those thought points, um, thought processes. But uh, do you want to um, – can we – we covered the who? We covered the where, the different settings. We covered the when and it's the why next, correct? Who, what, where, when, why? Yes. Okay. Where, when and why, why? Okay. So here's why. Unfortunately, this therapeutic intervention, this approach has not been incredibly well researched within the world of speech pathology. And if, It has, then both of us just completely managed to miss all potential articles, which is really sad. But our colleagues in the OT world, God, we love our OTs, they have put together some great resources. And I did find a really good aphasia resource for adults, but not in the peds world. And and I know we're asking a big ask. This is what we're advocating for is a complete shift for a lot of us, especially those of us that went to school where everybody gets services one to two times a week. Also on that note, if you're the facility that you're working for has a prescriptive model of every child gets services twice a week, or every child gets services once a week, that actually opens your facility and yourself up for potential code of ethics violations. You cannot. Cart block, everybody gets the same frequency and duration of services. It is specific and tailored to the individual child or patient for their level of need.
2: Which, and that can mean, like, that can mean, okay, we have a standard, we offer everyone a certain number of visits, and then based on your further evaluation, we use less, maybe we add on a couple, like, you know. It is hard, especially in big organizations, to have, like, as much freedom. But to give some leeway to clinicians to be able to adjust yes. is important.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. So the first article we found is – hold on one second. It is opening up. It's called Episodic Versus Continuous Care in Outpatient Pediatric Clinics. It's from the university – is that word it? Pudget sound? Pungit
2: P? Puget sound, I think. Puget sound. I could be wrong.
0: Um, somebody somewhere is laughing because they know exactly how to say this word. <laughs> also, Barb, if you're listening, I feel like I can see your face belly laughing and going like, oh Michelle. <laughs> so there it is. University up. It was uh, created by Rebecca Newman, Kimberly McGarvey, and Laura Hope. And what I love is that this uh, article was actually led by a PhD level researcher, George Tomlin, PhD, OTRL. He's a fellow of the American Occupational Therapy Association. It was a capstone project. It was published, came out in May of 2016. And it's free, open access, so you anybody anywhere can access this. Ma'am, did you eat the hamster? Erin, if you would like to touch base on what they're um, who they interviewed and kind of the age ranges of this very quickly, I just need to go make sure that Doctor Bubblebutt lives.
2: <laughs> okay, let me find it. Let's see. Uh, you were really doing so well and now i'm now i'm really know,
0: I'm sorry
2: now i'm really you found this one so guys just bear with us maybe this will uh this will be okay like she said it was a capstone project and they were looking mostly at evidence for children with cerebral palsy so this was with children with orthopedic conditions or developmental delays. And that was kind of their question. Is episodic care as effective as continuous care? Because if we're getting just as much from creating these episodes of care and allotting for better access and allotting for families to take a break and not have to come to therapy all the time, then why are we having them? And something to note that I found is I I think it does breed better attendance when you have episodes of care because they know they have a certain number of visits. So there's more of a, there's less of a, oh, well, if I just cancel this week, I'll, you know, I'll come next week. So there, I think that is something important to note, but they did expand some of their research to... Children with all diagnoses, diagnoses, but didn't include ASD, which I think probably would just get them into a lot of other articles that maybe they just weren't, that was less focused, especially from an orthopedic standpoint. But like they said, a lot of this was for CP, but CP is one of those diagnoses that just has more research because there was more understanding of cerebral palsy before a lot of other diagnoses, so that's
0: and there's yeah. lots of funding there. Dr. Mm-hmm. Bubble
2: Butt is alive.
0: Think just why? Do
2: you thought that she ate Dr. Bubble Butt?
0: Um, yeah, because she came downstairs literally licking her lips, and I could hear a noise upstairs.
2: Nice, so we're fine. Also, the universe, it turns out
0: he was completely out of water, so this was a, uh, a good call. So, go team. Sorry, right? Back. right. Yay, um, what. I really liked in this article was the depth to which they analyzed every single study that they went through. And they were very candid. The summation of it was that the therapist can feel confident that scheduling treatment around reasonable, real-world constraints will still provide no less effective care for their clients. And, And that was their concluding statement. It was the benefits between regular prescriptive therapy versus, and by prescriptive, I mean like once a week for X weeks for basically all time or episodic care. There, One did not outweigh the other. They were equal, which is fantastic because that allows for us to look at creating and scheduling therapy through an entirely new different lens. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and I will say, and re- like you said, how they wrote the article, I do think you'll find when you read occupational therapy articles that there's a lot more, what's the right word? They're a little more, not liberal with their discussion, but I think their discussion feels a little more, a little less technical sometimes.
0: Yes. Um, it. It's not as, I don't want to say stiff, but it. It reads more from the perspective of there's less emphasis on the technical research and it's more readable. So it's, there's, it's almost as if there's a conscientious push towards directly embedding it into therapy. Yep. Makes sense. Yep. Okay. Is there anything else that you wanted to take away from that article?
2: I don't think so. But I think and I think it's interesting to think to think about, okay, because we therapists are a finite resource. And I hate to say it that way, but there's only so many of us. So Mm -hmm. if this research and yes, this is a very specific patient population, but it just opens the door to more research on if we're getting the same outcomes from seeing them in shorter spurts of care than continuously. And i'm gonna use my time too to see other kids because where I get really frustrated is when I have patients on my on a wait list that have no plan they have no plan, and then we have kids you know that we've been seeing for years that need you know still are obviously in need support, but they have a plan mm-hmm. and they have a caregiver that has been coached and and we've worked through a lot of things with so my thought is always, okay, how can we get more patients in to create a good plan so the caregiver feels comfortable? Because who knows who knows what's gonna happen six months from now when they finally get off the wait list. Like it's it's just kind of crazy.
0: Sometimes I feel like our biggest when I read these things, I feel like my biggest takeaway is validation that it's okay to think different. Yeah. Also, it worries me when I look at the article, like the OT article, it makes me feel like our profession is behind the times. And that comes out very harsh, right? But I just, I feel like we just have a lot more growth to... Um, up with and that's okay we can create safe spaces but we as you said earlier like when we first started we don't have enough programs to graduate i mean we're just we're starving for clinicians and programs Yeah. yeah yeah we are yeah okay all right the next article is actually from an aphasia literature so right at the gate, I'm going to give this the caveat that this is an adult article, but again, trying to find Pete's articles on episodic care is in the world of speech pathology is limited. So this is called dosage intensity and frequency of language therapy for aphasia, a systematic review based, um, a systematic review based individual participant data network meta analysis. Oh my goodness. It's a very long one. It was published in Stroke, and it came out December first, twenty twenty-one. Nope, I'm sorry, March twenty-second, Volume three, Issue three. Okay, so what? www
2: dot. This... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love you. <laughs>
0: uh, okay, so what this article goes you forget through
2: about Google? You forget about <laughs> Google. I mean,
0: (laughs) there is some fellow middle-aged woman on here like, yeah, thank you, Michelle. Say it slowly. Repeat it twice. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm turning into my mother. God help us all. Okay. So (laughs) the question is which one? Grandma, my mom, or my stepmom? Mm -hmm. Probably a little of all the three. Okay. So in this article, they studied data from 959 participants. 25 different trials were included and they went through and they looked at the, the recovery time post-stroke. Now let's be honest. Some of our pediatric patients have strokes Mm -hmm. and it could be right at birth. It could be later on. It could, God, our sports injuries, our car accidents, an aneurysm that wasn't known that there was a blood vessel difference or complications from medical procedures Bad things can happen, which are horrible to think of as a parent, but we're just going to put joy in the universe and choose hope. But that's where I pull this from is that if we have the research from our adult aphasia post-stroke survivors and recommendations on rehab intensity, that should hold merit when our pediatric patients have similar or same etiology so the conclusion from this article and i'm going to read it straight again gave you all the fact-finding stuff the greatest language recovery was associated with frequent functionally tailored receptive expective speech therapy with prescribed home practice at a greater intensity and duration than reports of usual clinical services internationally These exploratory findings suggest critical therapeutic ranges informing hypothesis, testing trials, and tailoring of clinical services. In short, the once a week or twice a week for X period of time did not help these individuals make their optimal gains. It was get in, get in quick after the infarct has occurred or the bleed has occurred, and do your intense training with emphasis on the skilled home program. And to go back to what we talked about a minute ago under the service delivery models that you can find on Ash's website, the skilled maintenance program, but making sure that they are intense, that they are tailored, that they meet the patient or the caregiver's needs. And as I was reminded I learned, I learned a new word this week from my coworker, Sarah. So give credit where credit's due. Sarah Teeter, she's one of the clinical educators at the university. She taught me a word called therapeutic alliance. Have you heard of this term? Yeah. Oh, I live in the dark ages over here. So, well,
2: um, all the time, Michelle. I'm not in the cool kids
0: club. Dang. As I sit here in my soft pink striped fuzzy PJs. <laughs> that's my life story. But anyways, so therapeutic alliance, the way she described it was in the situations where you can't do child led therapy for whatever reason. She's like, you know, her example was a child with a speech sound disorder that's older and that you're working on drills and frequency. And I was like, Oh, bear, but, or goose with like this, the spelling stuff, right? Like we needed, she's like, you develop therapeutic alliance. So they may not be able to lead the duration of the session, but they're picking and choosing their break activity, excuse me. And, and it's still, they're leading in their own way, but you've created a bond to get buy-in and understand what they want out of the therapy session, which we forget that that's a critical corner of the evidence-based triangle that, Mm -hmm. you know, Research, yes, clinical experiences, yes, but also the patient caregiver goals and feedback. That's what makes it special.
2: And also, I think when you come to therapy every week, forever and ever and ever and ever, every week you're also coming and not having met all of your goals. So that can be very upsetting for caregivers and children. And by creating these episodes of care too, you can create goals that are a little more functional and have immediate success and growth so that instead of every time I'm coming here, I'm not meeting these goals. We're not getting to where we need to be over over and over and over and over and over again. It creates opportunity for the caregiver to just like, and the child just take care of themselves for a little bit Mm -hmm. and then to be in a better place mentally to start therapy up again and really invest in it and really be committed because that would be hard to have to go to therapy every week and every week I'm hearing what we're not doing, what goal we didn't meet, you know, what our next step needs to be kind of thing.
0: I went through this with bear with his R's. God bless America. I did not think he would ever get through those freaking R's. And I was ready to chuck R out of the alphabet on behalf of humanity, right? Like I was like, he's just done. And I remember Angela, Dr. Angela McLeod, if you're listening, we love you. We are not worthy. So Angela was like, Michelle, he's four years and five months old, it is not developmentally appropriate. And she would pull out the Iowa-Nebraska norms of articulation, go through the sounds that were appropriate, and then say, let's target this goal. Let's target this, blah, 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 when it's developmentally appropriate. Yes. So thank you, Angela McLeod, for sitting me down and reminding me that this is Best practice for speech sounds disorders. This is best practice switching to episodic care. It was no longer developmentally appropriate for the boot bear. He'd hit a plateau We're going a circle back around and go back to it. So we did. He eventually got the R. So what is your, to close on a high note, what is your favorite episodic memory story?
2: Episodic memory?
0: Yeah. Like, I have a little guy that we would plateau and that we would come back to every time we came started. back. I just
2: started. I don't know. Oh. I do have one kid, though, I'm really going to miss because he calls me doctor and he runs <laughs> up the biggest hug. And I tell him I'm not doctor, but he doesn't believe it. And he pretends to be sick so he can come see me.
0: Mm-hmm. So love- cute.
2: I think we have a little bit an anxious, uh, insecure attachment to me. So we're transitioning to another therapist, but I love him so much, but he's a little too attached to me. Cool. Calls mom by her first name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, and you doctor. I love this.
2: Doctor. Doctor. doctor, help me. The last session though, he called me Miss Aaron, And I was like, mm. and we don't get a lot of kids that can call us by our names
0: hmm I I get Mooshell. Yeah. They call yeah, they call me Mooshell. It is hard. It is hard with that transition in yeah. putting them on a I'll see you in a couple little ones. Ah. My favorite one was a little girl who did have a congenital heart defect and had survived her surgeries. And um, when I started with her, she was in hospice care and did not have a feeding tube was probably seven or eight months old and we were working through different plateaus. Mm -hmm. It was, she was so, so afraid of me because of scrubs. So I would toss on a a sweatshirt uh, when I went in or, you know, that's honestly, it's when I started wearing a lot more t-shirts to work as opposed to scrub tops. Mm -hmm. But it was hard for me for the mom because I, I grew attached to her and how she, her parenting style was just – it mentored me in my yeah. parenting style. But when we would hit a plateau, I would say, okay, so then let's just work on this one thing and I'll see you in a month because it's going to take a month because of her complexity. But I got to be with them as they moved through hospice – They graduated into palliative care and then she discharged to be just a regular little girl. I mean, she was going to need additional heart surgeries later on, but not till like we were like three or four. And it was really inspirational to see that therapeutic approach work for the child and the mom, while also hard to not to to let go, hard to let go. Also, the most amazing early interventionist because they're like, Hey, we got to increase services. And she's like, All right, I will make it work. I will see you next week. And she would, no matter how many other kids are on her caseload, this woman would move heaven and earth to be there for this child so that we could, which that is not lost on me. I know it was one of those things where like the stars aligned, but yeah. Okay. Ma'am, you have some exciting news that we need to share. So, yes, this one was about PFD, but you have a live presentation coming up in October. October. So tell us where they can find you and what you're covering.
2: It's the DIR conference, so ICDL, that hosts DIR floor time. It's all virtual. There's a lot of really great courses, and it's over – 10 days. So I'll be presenting twice. They like to just give a lot of opportunities for people to see different courses. And I'll be presenting on play and feeding therapy. So like floor time feeding therapy.
0: Amazing. And then folks, I'm actually presenting in September at the Mississippi State Speech Language Hearing Association Conference. So I will be in Flowood, Mississippi, which I didn't know was a place, but now I do. And uh, so, oh, and you know who else is presenting that weekend? Renee, Renee Garrett. She treats adults. So if you dibble dabble and you cross over into adults, Renee will also be there. So come visit myself and Renee and Flo in Mississippi at the Misha conference. And I'm doing a talk on how to conduct a PFD eval in the schools, I think is what I have been asked to speak on. but. Great! Right. Yeah, it'll, look it'll <laughs> be <good. laughs>
2: It's there. We'll be there. Right now, I'm just glad that dog didn't eat Doctor Bubblebutt. Doctor Bubblebutt got water. That would have been so sad for bear. Oh my <laughs> He is repairing himself. He knows how old they are in human years. Yes,
0: Bear has. This has been a bear heavy episode. Yes, uh, he's trying to convince mommy that he needs a chinchilla.
2: I know they'll shocked you at a hamster. Like I just, can't I
0: didn't think he would live on like
2: a fish or something.
0: Oh, I've had one of those, the bloody thing froze to death when the power broke during a storm and we were missing a wall. That's a whole conversation for another day. It yeah. froze literally in the tank and then came back together. We were living in a hotel because we had mold living in the house. So they gutted the wall and it was February in South Carolina. We had a random deep freeze and, The fish fish froze to death. What we thought, but then he came back alive when the heat came on because apparently fish, fish hibernate or something. Yeah. I didn't ask for the fish in the first place. This was an in-law decision. So yeah, that was all the other caregivers that are listening that have received an in-law given fish are like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that Dorothy, Dorothy, the fish, like Elmo's little fish, Dorothy. Yeah, that's fun. Okay, all right. So that's it, folks. That's what we have. Try episodic care. It is a dynamic, wonderful experience. Maybe don't receive an in-law given fish and uh, good luck getting your dogs to not eat your hamsters. And other comedic events, we will see you in September and in October at respective conferences. And then come check us both out presenting live at ASHA. And we will see you there. Thanks. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. Be kind and feed those
1: babies.